0: Well, good morning, everyone. How are we doing today? Good? Moms, have you had a good morning so far? I hope so, right? We're we're glad. We are grateful for you. We're also, like Pastor Andrew said, we also recognize that today can be a little bit of a difficult day. And so we just want to say thank you to all the ladies, whether you are mom, an aunt, a grandma, a sister, a coworker, a best friend, whatever you are, we are just grateful for the influence that you ladies have had in our lives. Another reminder, you are welcome to kind of take your mask off during the sermon time if you feel comfortable. If you do not feel comfortable, please feel free to leave it on. It's totally fine as well. I'm excited to be with you today. My name is Corey. I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Family. And today we get to continue in a series, continue in a conversation that we had uh, a couple months ago. And then we kicked it off again this week, or sorry, last week. And so we're going to step into it a little bit more. And that conversation we started was on a passage that is sometimes referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. You would find it in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7. And the reason it's called the Sermon on the Mount is simply because Jesus is talking and he's kind of up on a mountainside or up on a hillside. And so at this point in his life, he was having a lot of people that wanted to come and listen to what he had to say. So it was a little bit easier for him to find an elevated spot and to preach and teach to as many people as he could. And one of the big themes that we see as a part of this conversation that Jesus has with the people that are around him and that we can kind of glean from today is he talks about and thinks about what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. And I reminded us last week that if we have decided to follow Jesus, then we are then also a part of the kingdom of God. And so if that's true, then our priorities change. What is normal for us, how we live our life, how we Think about the way that we interact with others, that changes because we then are not just thinking about what goes on here on this earth, but we're thinking about God's kingdom as well. And so the cool thing is if you're here or you're listening online or you're driving down the road months from now listening to podcasts, wherever you're at, if you are not already a follower of Jesus, you get to just kind of listen. And maybe you're here or maybe you're listening or whatever because your mom said, You are coming with me to church today, and you had no option but to say yes. And so if you're here today and that's part of it, we, we are glad to have you and you get to lean in and kind of just see, is what Jesus is saying, is it worth it for me to follow that? Because if you haven't decided to follow Jesus already, this isn't necessarily what Jesus is talking about with you. But if we are followers of Jesus, if we have made that decision and we would recognize ourselves as part of the kingdom of God, guess what? We have to look at what Jesus is teaching in these verses and we have to be ready to apply them. Because what we read last week, one of the verses we read last week says, if you are part of the kingdom of God and you don't live your life this way, then you are wrong. And so we have to lean into some of this stuff and say, what is it that Jesus is calling me to and how am I going to live it out in my life? And one of the things that I introduced us to last week was this idea of new kingdom norms. What's different? What's new? We know the norms here on earth. We know what it's like to live in this world and what's normal and what's not. But many of us have been in situations where maybe we don't know what's normal. And we have to recognize, again, if we're part of the kingdom, there's a new set of norms that we have to ascribe ourselves to, and that should become part of our everyday life because of who we are in Jesus, if we are his followers. The reason we named this section of our conversation about this passage, the heart of the matter, is because what Jesus gets to, and I think we're going to see this today, is that what, where this all starts is in our hearts and minds. Where all of this decision-making, where all of this desire to live as part of the kingdom starts is in our hearts and minds. And so we have to evaluate what's going on there if we're going to make the correct decisions and our lives are going to look the way that Jesus wants us to live. There's a quote I want to share with us before we dive into the scriptures today. It's from a man named Dallas Willard. And Dallas Willard was a philosopher, he was an educator, he was a pastor for a little bit of time but then he went more towards academia. He passed away I think in about 2014, but he had this to say. He said, "Actions do not emerge from nothing. They faithfully reveal what is in the heart." Actions do not emerge from nothing, but they faithfully reveal what is in the heart. He says what we do is not something that just pops up. It's not just something that happens accidentally. It's a result of what builds up inside of us. Now, I'll I'll give one group of people that might be listening, I'll give you an out to this right now, okay? But let me explain carefully. See, I'll give an out to anyone who's under the age of 23, okay? Now, you might say, why am I giving them an out? Because what I know and maybe what you know, especially, like, think about this if you're a mom in the room. If you've been a mom of teenagers, there will be times where you will look at a teenager and you go, why did you do that? And they go, I don't know. And they're actually telling you the truth. I've sat with many teenagers. I've sat with parents of teenagers, with the teenagers. I've sat with parents who had a conversation with their teenager. Then they come to me because they want clarity. And we go, they go, why did you do that? I don't know. Here's why. Their brains aren't fully developed yet. Just truth, right? Just biology. And so guess what? There are times, and I've sat with teenagers, and I've said, I, I remember what, specifically one student. He just got up one day, and he got on his bike, and he just started to ride. And he rode for hours. Didn't come back. Eventually he came back, he was gone for far longer than his parents thought he should have been. And I sat with him after. I said, why'd you do that? He goes, I don't know. It's like, I just felt like I just needed to keep going. I was like, all right, well, let's talk about that. And we did, but there's this, I'll give you that out. But guess what? Everyone that's over the age of 23, we don't get an out. What this, what Dallas Willard says, and I think what Jesus says is, listen, you know why you do the things you do. Even if it feels like maybe it was a mistake or an accident, sometimes we do make mistakes or or we act on something we go, I don't know where that came from. But really when we get down to it, it's because of what lives in here and what we allow to be a part of our life. And so we're going to pick up our reading today in Matthew 5. We're going to start in verse 21. Matthew 5 verse 21 says says this, you have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to to judgment. Verse 22, but I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call, and if you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Now, before we dig into this section, let me just clarify what's happening. Because what Jesus is doing is he's kind of setting up a cadence for how some of the rest of this passage that we're going to look at today is going to go. And he says something very specifically in verse 21. He starts off verse 21 by saying, you have heard it said, or you have heard that our ancestors were told. What Jesus is doing is he's taking a step back and he's going, we were given this commandment. Our ancestors were given a commandment that says, and he goes on to say, you shall not commit murder. But then he goes to verse 22 and he says, but I say. And what we're learning by the way that Jesus is setting up this cadence is that Jesus has a little bit of a new take on the Ten Commandments. And this is where our conversation we had last week is so important. Because, and if you missed it, you can go back on YouTube, you can listen to the podcast. I would invite you to catch up in that way. But what we talked about last week was, Jesus said to the people he was teaching, I'm not here to abolish the law, I'm here to fulfill it. He said that because he knew in the next few minutes what he was going to say was, We got this commandment, our ancestors got this commandment, but I'm going to tell you this. And some people in the audience would have been looking at him and saying, you're taking away the Ten Commandments and you're doing it wrong. What he wanted them to understand was that he wasn't just taking away the Ten Commandments and throwing them away and saying they weren't important. He was taking them and he was expounding on them in a new understanding of what it would mean to live in the kingdom moving forward. So he has a new take on the Ten Commandments, and he leans into that to help us understand how it might look different moving forward. Just in case you haven't heard the Ten Commandments, or you don't know all of them, or you can't remember them all, I want to run through them really quickly, in very short order, okay? We'll find these in Exodus chapter 20, and I'm just going to give you the short version of every one, right? Just in case you don't remember them all. So in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 12, we find the first five. The first one is this, have no other gods. What does that mean? It means don't worship anything other than God. That could be an idea. It could be an activity. It could be some other God that has a name, right? Don't worship anything other than God. Number two, don't have idols. So don't create anything that you are going to bow down to or worship. Number three, don't misuse God's name. This is where we get the idea of don't take God's name in vain, right? Number four, observe the Sabbath. So take a break, have a rest. God did it. You should do it too. Number five is honor your father father and mother. And then when we move to Exodus 20 verses 13 to 17, we get to what Jesus just talked about. Number six, do not murder. Number seven, do not commit adultery. We'll get there in a little bit. Number eight, do not steal. Number nine, do not lie. And number 10, do not covet. So they were given all of these years and years and years before their ancestors were handed these. And Jesus is specifically going to a couple of them. and He's bringing this back up and saying, you know this commandment, but let's lean into it in a little bit of a different light and understand what it means for those of us who are in and part of the kingdom of God today. So let's go back and read verse 21 and 22 again. 21 again, you have heard that our ancestors were told you must not commit murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. And that comes from Exodus 20, verse 13, also Deuteronomy 5:17. But I say, let me expound on that. If you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Now, we read this. We dig into 22 a little bit. Feels like Jesus is being a little bit extreme, doesn't it? If you're even angry with someone, You're liable to judgment. Now, if you've heard Bible stories, your mind would automatically go to the time where Jesus is in the temple, he gets really angry, starts flipping tables and making a whip, and goes crazy on people. So now we have to understand, we have to think through, okay, so if Jesus is saying, if you're going to be angry and it's going to cause you judgment, how can he then act out of anger and do something that's super, like, you're like, I've never flipped tables on anybody, I've never been that angry, right? How can he be in both those camps? How is that okay? Well, when we look at this verse, what we, what we have to understand is there's, there's actually a build-up that Jesus is wanting us to understand. There's a build-up to this anger. So he starts with anger, and then he goes, you are subject, you're subject to judgment if you call someone an idiot. Now, again, we have to understand what this means. Usually, at least in my life, when I use the word idiot, it's kind of in a joking, passive way. Right? I might be joking with somebody and go, Oh, you're such an idiot. And it's just like a laughing thing, right? I'm not being mean at someone I know well. It's just kind of a joke. Okay? Usually. But the question is, what would it what would it take for you, and this is the idea behind the word that's here, what would it take for you to literally stare someone in the face and tell them they were an idiot in order to tear them down? That's not something that I typically do. I hope it's not something you typically do. But there would be an intent there to look at them and to cause them to feel like less of a person, to feel like they weren't good enough. And then Jesus goes one step further and he says, and if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Now this one we don't see in our culture a lot because some of our culture has moved away from spiritual things, but the understanding, the idea behind what this is talking about is almost saying, you're not worth going to heaven. You're not worth saving. For us, it would be almost like looking at, you're not even worth Jesus' time to save. There's a deep progression here. From anger, to tearing someone down, to to saying they're not even eternally worth it as a human being. And there's a, that starts with anger, and it moves forward. And so what Jesus is saying is if you allowed your anger to build up towards someone to the point where that's the type of attitude you would have towards them, you would have taken the life out of them, not physically, but you would have taken the life out of them as a person. We wouldn't ever, I hope, we wouldn't ever say to somebody, look them in the face and say, you're not even worth Jesus' time. But if we did, what would it accomplish? We would ruin that person's day. They would think about that probably moving forward for a long time. It would cause them to feel like they were less than. This is a deep understanding of what it means to be angry and the buildup that can come if we continue to store that anger inside of us. What we understand, what we talked about with Dallas Willard and what Jesus is teaching us is that our actions always show what is going on in our hearts. Our actions always show what is going on in our hearts. Let me go back and just give us another example of just like a hypothetical situation that could happen. So let's just imagine that you were at lunch or dinner out at a restaurant with with some friends. And you are sitting there, you ordered a cheeseburger, right? And your waiter comes back and they drop off the food and the food that they place in front of you is a chicken sandwich, okay? So they got the order wrong. A normal healthy human being in that moment would stop the waiter and say hey sorry this isn't what i ordered and that waiter would then come back and say oh i'm so sorry let me let me go get your food right they bring your food maybe you got your food 2 minutes later than everybody else but that would be the end of the conversation right no problem not going to be an issue but think about it. if you were at that meal and someone across from you got the wrong food and in that moment they called the waiter back they stood up they looked him in the eye in front of everybody and said you are an idiot get this away from me. What would you think about your friend? You would think that was a terrible way to act. You would probably also ask, what is going on in your life right now that you responded that way to somebody else? You would know it wasn't just that moment, right? It wasn't the chicken sandwich that really caused all of that. But there was something deeper. There was something going on that that moved them to this place where the overflow of that moment the chicken sandwich was the last straw, and all of a sudden, they just decided that they were going to lash out in that way. We would know in that moment that there was something deeper down that caused that reaction because what we do, our actions always show what's going on in our heart. And so what Jesus is trying to help us understand as he moves through this progression of anger and what that looks like, what he wants us to understand is that addressing a lesser evil will keep us from committing a larger If we address what's at the root, if we address this thing when it's at anger, it's not going to move to some of the actions that are going to happen. He says, if you take that early on, that early stage, that early problem that you see happening, that first tinge of anger, and you look at that and you address it and you say, What is going on there? It's going to stop it from moving forward. It's going to stop it from growing. It's going to stop it from moving to a place where we don't want it to go. Let's continue in our passage. Let's go to verses 23. And 24 of Matthew 5. He says, so if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to the person, then come and offer your sacrifice to God. So remember, Jesus is teaching this. This is before Jesus has died. And so the regular practice that would happen in that time would be that they would bring animals to sacrifice as a picture of their atonement for their sin. And so the regular practice they would understand was they would come and they would bring their offering and they would offer that thing to God. And what Jesus says is if you show up to the temple with your offering and you remember that there has been some anger, some hostility, some frustration between you and another person, and that relationship is not right, you should stop, you should not make that offering, you should go make it right and then come back and make the offering. Okay, so what does that mean for us today? How do we offer things to God? We make offerings out of our time and our energy and our resources. So you set aside an hour, hour and a half, whatever it is, on, a, on Sunday mornings or whenever you're watching or listening in, that's your time with God, right? You've set aside this time to give over to God, to come and worship corporately, and to learn from God's word together. That's an offering of time to God. We may also offer our... Talents and our abilities. So maybe you serve on the worship team, or you serve in kids ministry, or you serve on the greeting team, or you help around the building and, and fixing things and all that kind of stuff. You you give that offering of your talents and abilities God has given you to serve other people. You also can serve out of your bank account or offering out of your bank account. You give money. And so when that happens, those are those are all offerings. They're things that we hand back over to God from what He has given to us. And so, the way that we might understand this passage today is that when we show up to church and we realize that we're about to give an offering to God, but we have this problem, this rift, this quarrel that's going on between us and somebody else, and the relationship isn't right, what Jesus would say is don't stay here. Go fix it and then come back. Listen, I'm giving you the out as a pastor. If you show up to serve, our ministry leaders are not going to like what I have to say here. If you show up to serve, and you go i just realized like my wife and i were not right i'm going to say go fix it we'll cover you it's more important that you go fix that and then offer if you were going to show up today and you were going to give money but you're thinking there's somebody that i need to fix things with don't give it yet go and fix that thing go and fix that reconcile that relationship and then come back we think through these things when we're when we're talking about Who's up here to lead? We think about this when we're, when we're asking people to serve in different positions like the elder board or even in kids ministry and what's going like, We think about these people and we go, are these people that we know are not holding grudges against other people, especially in our church? Do they do their best to live at peace with others? We think about that because we want to have people serving and get, we don't want people going against us. We don't want to be part of asking people to do something they shouldn't. And so Jesus gives us this example. Our anger could flow into a situation where we have a grudge against somebody else. And he says, if that's true, you should not come and offer to God. Why? Because offerings from, a contempt, from contemptuous hearts are worthless to God. Now, why is that? Why does he make such a big deal about this idea? This, this is why I think Jesus makes such a big deal about this. Jesus has the right to be separated from us because of our sin. He has that right. He could say, you know what, you've sinned against me. I'm just going to distance myself from you. But what Jesus has done is said he has no contempt towards anyone. In fact, he was willing to die and offer anyone eternal life. So when we come and we can't forgive someone that Jesus has already forgiven, he doesn't want our offering. He wants us to forgive just as he forgave. Because we're holding a grudge that even Jesus didn't hold. And so he says, Don't do that. I've forgiven you. Go and forgive them. And then you can come and worship. You can give your offering. In verses 25 and 26, Jesus gives us another example that we can follow. He says, When you are on the way to court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly otherwise your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you you over to an officer and you will be thrown into prison and if that happens you surely won't be free again until you have paid the last penny so now Jesus shifts to a different idea he goes if you have to go to court with somebody don't wait for the court date go try and reconcile ahead of time and one of the verses that we read a couple of months ago when we talked about this is matthew chapter five, verses nine, it says this, God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. So we think back to that. He would have just said that just a little bit ago in this conversation. We think back to what that means and we go, okay, if there's a court situation, Jesus says, go and fix it ahead of time. Why? I've never been in a situation where I've had to be in court against somebody else. It just hasn't happened. But I would imagine that if I leaned into that and and that happened in my life, whether I was right or wrong or whatever. And we went through that situation where that person's there and I'm there and we're both trying to win and we're both just trying to bring whatever we can against the other person. I would imagine that after going through that process, it's very difficult to reconcile with that person. But if we go to them ahead of time, whether we're right or wrong or they're right or wrong, we have the conversation ahead of time and we work to reconcile in that moment. I would imagine there's more of a chance of that relationship being saved with a conversation before we actually get to that quartet than if I wait until we have to go through that process against one another. I think reconciliation should always be our goal because God has reconciled with us. Reconciliation should always be the goal simply because Jesus and God have, has already reconciled with us. You know, when we talk about this idea of, of new kingdom norms and understanding what's different. What the world would say is if somebody takes you to court or you have the opportunity to take someone to court, throw the book at them. Take every opportunity you can. Get every penny out of them that you can. Jesus says the opposite. He says, go and fix it. Go and make it right ahead of time. Don't set yourself against someone more than you need to. I think this is so important because when we think about what Jesus did for us, this is what he actually did. In fact, if we have sinned and we all have sinned, we've all done wrong things, guess what? We've all got an appointed court date. It's called the judgment seat. Jesus doesn't wait for the judgment seat, right? He came ahead of time. He came before the court date and said, I'm going to do everything I can to reconcile with you. And so, if Jesus was willing to show up way ahead of time to give us the opportunity to reconcile and to be forgiven of that sin, to, to figure out the differences, so that when we get to the judgment seat, when we get to the point where God sees us and he looks on us to see if we have sin, he sees Jesus instead, that's what we should do for other people. We should engage them early on, not try and lean in, not try and bring the book against them, but that we would do everything we can to reconcile with them. Jesus kind of switches gears. He goes back to another commandment here in verses 27 and 28. He says, you have heard the commandment. Again, right, he's going back to the Ten Commandments. You've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He goes on in verse 29. So if your eye, even your good eye, meaning your eye that you would use to like aim if you were shooting, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Before we dive into exactly what Jesus says here, because that kind of, he escalates that pretty quickly, right? Have you noticed something that Jesus kind of uses as a tagline for some of these things? He says, gouge it out and get rid of it. Why? Because it's better to lose a part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. It causes me to think through this question, and maybe you're asking the same thing. And that simple question is Is hell real? You know, this is a conversation that goes on around Christianity a lot today. Because it's one of the things that people look at with Christianity and they will actually say, I want no part of it, because how could a loving God send people to hell? The issue is Jesus talks about hell a lot. And so if we ask the question, does Jesus really truly believe that hell is a real place? I think that's the question we have to ask if we're going to get the answer to whether it's real or not. I believe the answer is yes. If Jesus is going to bring it up this much, and he would even say, get rid of your eye rather than go to hell. Right? It's not a pretty picture. He's saying stay Away from that reality. Don't let that be a real thing. I don't like that that's true. I wish I could preach to you the opposite. And there are plenty of Christians that have found a way to kind of figure out, I'm going to work this and kind of figure out the scriptures so that I can make hell not a real place. I wish I could do that. I would love to. But the reality is what Jesus says here is so serious. He wants us to stay away from that. And he leans into their imagination, actually, because what we understand is when he was teaching this, where their minds would have gone was there was a valley close by where there was fire that just constantly happened. It was kind of, and it was where they would take trash and they would even take bodies there and it would just burn and burn and burn and just trash and bodies and all the time. And so he leans into that. When we read what the, the language he used here, that's what their minds would have gone to. He was basically saying, you know, that place that no one wants to go, no one wants, it's just fire and death and, and just terrible things all the time, stay away from that. And he uses their imagination to help them make the connection that that is a place that we don't want to go. We want to as kingdom, people of the kingdom, we want to move as far away from that as we can. And when Jesus has this conversation, he goes into this idea in verses 27 through 29 about what it means to commit adultery and what it means if if our eye causes us to lust. What he wants us to get is that our imagination or your imagination is a dangerous place. There's been a lot of really good things that have come out of imaginations, right? Some of the greatest minds in our world have thought up these ideas that have become a reality, and we are super thankful for them, right? The fact that we are able to have phones that work from anywhere on the planet I'm pretty happy about that. Whoever's idea that was, that was awesome, right? There's a lot of really good ideas that have happened in some great minds. Someone's imagination came up. But Jesus also knows that if we allow our minds to go to the wrong place, it can be a very, very dangerous place. And it's almost a cliche to say this, but what we know is like someone that has an affair, it doesn't happen in 24 hours. It wasn't someone who woke up one day and just goes, oh, yeah, I think I'll do that today. There was a process. There was an idea that popped into their mind one day and they didn't get rid of it and they kind of just allowed it to stay. And then a couple weeks later, they were thinking about how they could maybe start the conversation with that person. Then a few months later, they were thinking about how they could rearrange their schedule to hide some things, right? There was a constant movement in that direction because their imagination they allowed to dwell on something. And so it moved them to a place where they did not want to be. Our last verse, verse 30 for the day, says this, and if your hand, even your stronger hand, the hand that you use, it's your well-being, it's what you use to work, it's what you need to make money, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So again, he has this idea. He goes into, if there is a part of you that causes you to sin, get rid of it. Don't allow it to stay. As we wrap up our time together today, there's, there's an analogy I want us to kind of understand and think through as to how we apply what Jesus is talking about in this passage. And the simplest way I can say it is this. What lives in the harbor of your heart will eventually set sail. What lives in the harbor of your heart or in your mind will eventually set sail. What do I mean by that? I, I just want you to imagine that the things, the feelings, the emotions you have, the, the actions that you're going to do, they, they live inside you like we've talked about, right? They start in anger. They start in a good, there could be good things there too. They could start out of love or joy or whatever, and you, you keep them in your heart, and, and there's just this harbor where the ships are. But here's what happens. The longer the ships stay in harbor, the more they get filled. You could start with just an angry feeling one day towards somebody, and then the next day there's an angry feeling, and that gets put there. And then there's another angry feeling, and that gets stored up. And then there's another angry feeling, and that gets stored up. And what happens with a ship that gets fully loaded? It sets sail. It takes off to where it needs to go. Listen, this is what happens if we allow these things to hang out in our heart. We load them up and load them up and load them up, and eventually the ship will set sail, and it will become an action that we didn't even expect it to become. It will move to a place where we didn't want it to be. Our imagination, our thought process of what we were going to do, what we thought we were safe in, builds up in that ship and it finally goes. And all of a sudden we've done something that maybe we didn't even plan on doing, but we allowed it to become what it could become in our hearts. I want to make a very specific definition so that we understand what this means. Harboring sin is different than being tempted to sin. So, harboring things, keeping things inside of us that shouldn't be there, it's different than just being tempted and moving away from something, right? You can be tempted and say, I'm not going to do that thing. I'm going to step away from it. I'm not going to do it. You could be in a store one day and just go, Man, that would be great if I could just grab that and walk out. Really small little temptation. But you were maybe able to just go, That's silly. I don't want to do that. I'm going to get in trouble. I'm just going to keep walking, right? That temptation was there momentarily. You're not harboring anything. But the harboring would be, you walk past that thing, man, I wish I could just walk out with it, right? You come back the next day, just walk by, I wonder how many people are like watching me right now. By the way, when I worked at Best Buy, we had people just watching cameras, okay? So don't steal anything from stores, they'll catch you. But all of a sudden, it just starts to become, I want that, how can I get it, what can I do? And one day, maybe you find yourself walking out of the store with it. You didn't plan on it two weeks ago, but it just happened. So harboring sin is different than being tempted. And if we can identify the temptation and move away from it, it's going to be okay. But it's when we allow those things to set in and we continue to go back to them that they become a problem. I think Jesus built kind of a progression here as we understood this today. We talked about anger, and then we talked about lust, and then Jesus talked about if your hand caused you to do something, cut it off. I think he moved from a feeling, anger, to a desire, lust. And then to action. I think the way we can understand this is that sinful feelings lead to sinful desires. And sinful desires lead to sinful actions. We have to think about where it starts. It started with a feeling. It started with anger. It started with frustration. It started with not feeling like I have enough. And if we allow it to progress to the the, feel, or sorry, the, the desires, we need to stop it. We need to recognize it. We need to move it backwards. But when we let it get to actions now, it's, it's fully gone and the ship has sailed. So the question, the challenge for us today as we evaluate how we apply this is, what ships do you need to sink? The best way to get rid of these things is when we realize there's something harboring in our heart that shouldn't be there, we sink the ship we get rid of it. In fact, there's a term for this. When you sink your own ship so no one else gets it, it's called scuttling. You decide it's worth it, that you would just lose this, get rid of it, rather than have somebody else take hold of it. In fact, this happened at the Battle of Yorktown. That was the decisive battle in the Revolutionary War. The Continental Army had pushed the British back kind of to the waterfront, and they had a problem because the French had showed up with their ships. So they're kind of hemmed in on both sides. And about a week before they surrendered, the British realized that the French were going to take their ship. And they actually scuttled the ship right there in harbor. They said, I would rather get rid of this rather than allow somebody else to have it. This is what Jesus is talking about when he makes the analogy of gouge out your eye or cut off your hand. This is better for you to get rid of something that could do good things, but it's causing you to do wrong Get rid of it before someone else can take hold of it. The worst thing that can happen is for us to store these ships in the harbor of our heart and then allow Satan to make them set sail. That's the worst thing that could happen. And so as people who are followers of Jesus, as people who are part of the kingdom of God, we have to evaluate, what, what am I allowing to get in here? What am I allowing to be up here? Are my feelings correct? Are the feelings that I'm having, are the feelings that I'm dwelling on, are they positive things? Are they things that Jesus would want me to dwell on? Are my desires, the things that I want, the things that I think I need, are they positive, are they good, or do they move me away from Jesus? Are the actions, the things that I'm allowing myself to do, are they good or are they bad? And when we can recognize that and we have that constant, Inventory that we take of what's going on inside of us. What does it do? It stops the ship from being filled and it stops it from getting to a place that we never wanted it to get in the first place. You know, the interesting thing that Jesus does with these commandments is he says, you know, we were taught, don't murder. We were taught, do not commit adultery. Jesus makes it more difficult, doesn't he? Because what you could have done in that situation was, oh, okay, don't murder. All right, well, I can just. I can hate that person. I can dislike that person. I can be mean to that person. As long as I don't kill them, I'm fine, right? And I'm, I'm not going to commit adultery, but I'm going to think about things that I, I can think about, right? As long as I don't take that action, I can still follow that rule. Jesus says, no, you've got to be way more ahead of the game than that. Our internal lives should also reflect what we want to live out as kingdom members. And so we've got to think about and take inventory of that daily, weekly, weekly to make sure that nothing's living in here that will eventually set sail. So my challenge to us this week, what ships do you need to sink? You could have a conversation with somebody else about that. What are you seeing in me? What are the things that I need to get rid of? That's vulnerable, isn't it? Figure out what those things are so that we can evaluate this week so that our actions, our feelings, our desires don't become the actions that we never wanted them to become. Let's pray to end our time today. Lord, we are we are so grateful that we have this conversation that you had thousands of years ago that we are able to lean into and understand. And we ask that as your followers, as people who are part of the kingdom, your kingdom, that we would not allow those actions, not allow those things that we're harboring to become the actions we don't want them to become. We ask that you would make it clear to us what is in our Parts in our mind that shouldn't be there, that we would engage with that, that we would make sure that we're not allowing things to live there that shouldn't be there. And I pray that we would have the strength to then sink that ship. Do what it takes to make sure that those feelings and desires and emotions don't become something they shouldn't. Maybe you'd even give us the strength to have a conversation with somebody close to us and they could help us evaluate what's going on in there. We pray that we would honor you, even in our private lives and what goes on in our hearts and minds, and that you would be glorified there as well. In Jesus' name, amen.